Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. This is Shirley Halperin, Executive Editor of Music for Variety, with a special episode that we're calling Strictly Music Business. With me today is the chairman of Sony Music Group, Rob Stringer, who oversees the record labels Columbia, RCA, Epic, and Arista Records, as well as Sony Music Publishing and The Orchard, and leads a staff of more than 5,000 employees around the world. A music business lifer, if ever there was one, Rob has spent his entire professional career working his way up the ranks of the Sony system, seeing the industry evolve through physical products, to downloads, to streams, and whatever may lay ahead. A native of the UK, Stringer moved to New York in 2006 and has spent the last 15 years shaping Sony's recorded music business in the US. As chief executive of Sony Music Label Group and later Columbia, he helped bring to the world a slew of successful new artists, including Adele, Calvin Harris, Harry Styles, Haim, J. Cole, The Chainsmokers, and Tyler, The Creator. And he's also looked after such iconic acts as Beyonce, Bob Dylan, Barbara Streisand, ACDC, Celine Dion, Daft Punk, Shaw Day, and David Bowie, whose final album, Black Star, Columbia released in 2016. In his current role of Sony Music Group Chairman, which he assumed in 2019 after three years as CEO of Sony Music, Rob Stringer has met more than his share of challenges, from making the right hires to see the company's vision through, to banking on talent and not just hits, to segueing to a subscription-driven business, to getting through a global pandemic and responding to the call for social justice. We talk about these subjects and much more while also getting a sense of Rob's refreshingly British outlook on things that are uniquely American. All this as borders cease to exist in this new global music economy. Afterwards, stick around for a coda to this episode, a talk with Grammy-nominated mastering engineer Emily Lazar, who has worked on 4,000 albums since she started her career in 1997. In 2021, Emily has no fewer than 10 projects in contention for Grammy Awards, including three in the Album of the Year category, Haim, Coldplay, and Jacob Collier. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome back to Strictly Business. I'm joined by Rob Stringer, chairman of Sony Music Group, for the first ever edition of Strictly Music Business. Rob, thanks so much for being here. So, so nice to be on the first ever Strictly Music Business podcast, Shirley. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because you started out as a CBS Records trainee, and then you got to feel your way around the different departments and find the lane that best suited your skill set. Can you tell me about that? Well, yeah, I could tell you about that in context of we've actually talked a lot about how that would work in, in the new company and that we need to make sure that our employees move around the company more dramatically so they get more experience of the bigger picture. And, and actually, I, I think it, what mine was big picture by default, really. I started as a marketing graduate trainee. And you're talking about this is the mid-80s when human resources was called personnel. So it was like it's a different era. And I come off being a university, social secretary, University of London, which was a very obvious way of going into the music business in that era. And um, they, they mapped out this journey for me for three weeks. And then they just said, actually, there you go. There's a three week training. Now go and sit at someone's desk and try and be useful. And I tried to be useful and tried not to be like a sort of student brat. But the fact is that I did go to like, probably eight departments in, in that first month, which certainly told me as much as what I didn't want to do, as much as what I did want to do and what I might be suited to and what I didn't. And the conclusion was, which eventually came to pass, was that I would be in marketing, but I knew straight away I really wanted to do A&R. So it took me about four years. Once I'd had a good experience in marketing, I moved into A&R because I knew that I needed that training to do a different type of journey in the music business. So the creative was calling you. Yeah. I mean, marketing's obviously creative too, but I knew that I had to dive into a, a more schizophrenic sort of artistic pool to really be able to understand the psyche of what the art form is we're dealing with. You know, that job is quite lonely and odd because it's quite subjective. I mean, it may not be as subjective now with research and stats, which I'm sure you'll talk to me about. But the fact is then it wasn't that. And it was gut reaction and, you know, some information like you would stand at the back of a club and there would be a lot of people there and you go, well, this must mean something. But it was subjective in many ways. And, and actually, you are either sort of the hero or the class clown, you know, and not that much in the middle. So that's the difficult thing to deal with because your metrics of success are 
are blatantly obvious. You know, it's like diving at the deep end. And, and I don't think maybe I would have had the same pathway if I hadn't made that switch. I mean, it seems, you know, now that we've had 60 years of major labels being in existence, it seems that one thing is abundantly clear, and that is that the leadership has to have very strong A&R chops. Is this as important today as it was in the pre-internet era? Because you do have a mountain of data available to you at any given moment. How do you sort of balance guts and data today? Obviously, we dig deeper and deeper for data. That process is now anything to get an edge, anything to get a little bit more information, to, to look at something in a slightly more complex, unusual way, to find something that meant something. That's all good, but I'm as interested in once you get the artist or the, the set of songs in the building, then you better make sure you know what to do with it. There's always been hits. There's always been one-off hits. There's always been novelty hits. There's always been uh, there's always been records that have started somewhere and you've seen the explosion. I mean, in the 70s and 80s in America, it would have been a small radio station in Kansas playing something. They played the record once and they got phones. This is an incredibly sophisticated version of that, really. We have to maintain a balance between the data and the realities of artistic development. As yet, some social media platforms have not broken two records by an artist, for example. So therefore, okay, so you've got a, you've got a platform. It breaks the record. When you go back to that platform, is the structural capability there to break the second song? Not necessarily. We have young graduates and young people coming into the business who have got great statistical capabilities, are also a massive music fans. And if the balance is on the tech, you want to get them to understand the music as well. It's got to be a balance, really. Well, I think another thing that plays to your advantage and plays to my advantage as well is being just being of a certain age is that we do straddle the pre-internet world. We remember LPs. You have actually not only lived through every format you know, physical format, but you've worked every physical format, which I just think, you know, is, is a huge advantage to being able to run a global music company. You've seen it all, you know, the scenarios, what works, what doesn't, and you can apply those things. I'm wondering, is there a through line that applies to every evolution of physical media for music? Is there something that has stayed the same from the LP days of your youth in the 70s to today with streaming and the world of music at your fingertips? Wow, that's a 50-year question. I think talent remains the same. I'm running constantly to keep up with the changes. And like you said, I think there's a certain period of time where my upbringing in the business wasn't like a pioneer in the 50s and 60s but I had an intimate knowledge of that era of music because I grew up starting in the 70s. You know, I wasn't a pioneer because there was people that boldly went where no one else had gone before, whether it was on the back of Elvis Presley or the blues or the Beatles or whatever it may be, that I didn't have that, but I had enough to look back 20, 30 years instead of now looking back 70 years to get that compendium of knowledge. So I think that it's a bit of a cliche, but what goes around comes around is still the case. There's still certainly lineage of ideas and talent, the way that talent and way that artistry interprets those ideas that is prevalent 
across decades and decades. And I see similarities every day with things. And sometimes I'll say to an artist, this is like this. I mean, you wouldn't have heard of that. And, you know, quite frankly, with the internet, sometimes they go, sure, we know that band or we know that artist because Spotify and Apple and Amazon are all you can eat buffets of all the music for, for multi-generations. But there is a lineage there. I mean, certainly talent, as I said, is a lineage. You know, someone being artistically gifted is a lineage. Someone being an amazing songwriter, there's a lineage there. And it cuts through generations. And, and you're right. I feel like I started to take on board and absorb that knowledge at a crossroads where I could look back, but also I could look forward too. And, you know, so far I'm keeping pace with looking forward. You know, I mean, the streaming model is here and I don't know what next model is. I've seen plenty of models and hopefully I can navigate those chapters with an understanding of what the musical art form is and will need to balance out the tech. Because of course, at the moment, this is quite a dramatic chapter of art and tech. And there have been chapters of the recorded music business, which have just been about the music, where companies like mine would be okay if you had hits. You know, and it's not that simple now because it's moving so fast and there would be a debate as whether tech drives art or art drives tech. It would be a debate. And that's a complex debate in the current chapter of the music business. Absolutely. And I see what you're saying about what goes around comes around again, because even when I think about podcasts and how popular scripted audio is at the time, I mean, Sony's made an investment into podcasts as well. It's like the old radio teleplays. What's the difference? Yeah, I mean, everything's blended. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in technology, people are taking, you know, there may be five components of an idea from a previous technological platform and someone takes one and expands that idea and shifts the emphasis slightly. And that's the case of music too. There's a debate, constantly debate, particularly in America, about rock music. And is rock music dead? And where are the next rock band and all that kind of stuff? But it, and I don't look at it like that because I look at it and go, okay, well, actually, in a strand of emo hip hop, there is a blend of rock music in that, and there is a huge component of that music that is that is the angst and reflectiveness of rock music. But it's a blend, and it's a fusion, and it's new because it's a fusion, you know. And and I don't get nostalgic for saying, well, the way it should be is that. I need to go and stand in a club and see a bass singer, drummer and guitarist. And that's how it is, because that isn't going to be how it is. It's going to be a component, sure, but it's not going to be the central because things move on. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I knew a lot about music being in the past because you had a radio in your front room and your parents taught you about it. But the fact is, when I liked the Talking Heads in 1977, I didn't want to listen to Glenn Miller from 1943. I knew who Glenn Miller was, but I didn't want to listen to that music. And I think people got to understand now that this is a very mature art form music. And so therefore people in 2020 don't automatically know a rock band from 1980. It doesn't work, it's 40 years. If you think about 40 years in the medium of film or in the medium of television or other art forms, it's light years difference. And, and the fact is, why is music not thought of as being different to that? These gaps are big and people have got to get used to, to understanding that, you know, you didn't like the music from 30 years ago, so don't expect your kids to like the music from 40, 50 years ago. But there will always be a component and a trace of other forms of music in that blend. Because as I said, this is a mature art form now. 
and I see it all the time. I mean, you know, it's like we have young 18-year-old rappers whose musical influences are crazy. <laughs> and they go back seven or eight decades. But the fact is they've turned it into something new, you know. And I find that incredibly exciting. And I and honestly, it sounds, you know, without trying to sound like Peter Pan, I don't look back that often and, and be over nostalgic about what was. Because I'm fortunate enough to see what is and what will be with that blend. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Rob Stringer. And we're back with Rob Stringer. So, Rob, this might not be the most popular opinion, but I'm doing some of the math in my head, and the streaming services, which are currently driving record revenues, I think $10.1 billion in the U.S. in 2020 alone, you know, many of them benefited from an early investment by the major labels. Do you feel that record companies maybe haven't gotten enough credit for helping seed those emerging technologies? Yeah, but I also would say that I'm not sure that I'm ever going to come for a place publicly, Shirley, or an interview saying that we deserve to take credit. <laughs> you know, it's probably justifiably in many ways. We take a lot of grief and stick for the way we behaved in previous chapters, and I'm sure some of that is accurate. But I think it would be safe to say that we're certainly not tech phobic and that we are willing to be braver and we're willing to be smarter about how open minded we are. And I understand where, because as we just talked about, things didn't change for a long time. Hits were the definition. And, you know, and that caused all sorts of idiosyncrasies in our business. And the fact is that people only had to think about the hits and we made plastic in factories and the plastic was vinyl or the plastic was a CD. And then all of a sudden tech changed the landscape and we got caught behind. I think we've learned a lot since then. I'm used to people saying we're clueless. That's okay. I mean, we were clueless when downloads came along, but what we did do as a business is we constituted ourselves. We changed the head count. We ditched manufacturing, ditched distribution that way. And we, push towards a more creative, innovative, entrepreneurial style. And I think we're much better placed today than we would have been 20 years ago. You know, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. We're not a brand new company. We're not, we're not a two-year-old startup. We've been, you know, this company in some derivation has been around 130 years. But I think we're much more open-minded about how to change and how to be flexible now, much more. And my challenges every day are based on that, as well as just, finding hits. I've heard you say before that you had a headcount of about 15,000 at the turn of the millennium and you got it down to 5,000. Yeah. And I wonder, does that make major labels more nimble today? Are you able to respond faster than in the past? Yeah. And I think it's also about the training of those people, whether you've got 5,000 or 15,000 is what people are doing. And, and by the way, this wasn't the choice. I think we, at the era, we probably did it kicking and screaming. We gave up manufacturing. We gave up distribution. It wasn't like we want to give up manufacturing distribution. It was taken away from us. But the fact is now we're able to gear people much more to, to what we need to do. We have way more creative people and way more entrepreneurial people in our company than we did a year ago, never mind five years ago or 10 years ago. So there's definitely been a deliberate emphasis on that basis. And as I said, of that 15,000, 
many of those jobs are just redundant now and they wouldn't be applicable. And no disrespect to any of those people who were, did their jobs probably very well, they, they're not needed. So we've had to change. And I think that we were able to make that adaptation when we were written off. And that was okay because fair enough, we misread the turn of millennium and you know we were going to be non-existent and by 10 years time and we went below ground and we built systems back up more sensibly. We bought companies and we bought stakes in companies. We bought, you know, 50% of Bertelsmann in 2009 for what looks like an incredible bargain now because it's probably the value is 15 to 20 times that amount. And Universal bought EMI and we bought EMI Music Publishing. And you know, so maybe we wouldn't have done that in 1995 at the boom of CDs, but we had to because we had to go back to the, the drawing board. And that period between probably 2003, four, and then the early 2010s, the general perception was we were left behind. So we had to go and get ourselves to be a bit more smart about the way we did things. And I do think we did that. I think that chapter of the live business taking over and other areas of the business being more prominent gave us the chance to reevaluate ourselves and reconsider what on earth we were doing to be relevant. You know, I came here during that chapter. I came here and came to America in 2006, which was in the middle of that time period, you know, and uh, it was a bit like starting again, Shirley, to be honest, but with fortunately amazing catalogue. Obviously, the pandemic has been incredibly difficult for many businesses, but recorded music is actually thriving to the tune of double-digit growth. Well, I mean, I think, you know, tech takes a lot of credit for that because the tech platforms had put music in people's homes and in their cars and in their phones so directly that we were able to benefit from that. And suddenly a lot of people had a lot more time to listen to music. After the initial shock of COVID for the first couple of months, then people settled into a, in a different routine in their lives and music became a very important part of that routine. So what has been a bit more strategic is understanding the sheer volume of music that would be going into those platforms and understanding that we would need a bigger share of that, that quantity. And so we do have nets that trawl much wider for music than any point in history. We are now looking at constant ways of finding more music to put through our system and understand where it sits. And certainly at the beginning of COVID, that timing worked very well because we were able to put more music out despite the fact you'd naturally think with what COVID happening that it would be less music. It actually wasn't. We didn't suffer from the fact that everyone stopped. You know, I'm not saying there won't be a value gap because I think there will be. There will be creative synergies that haven't happened because of COVID. There may have been a meeting in a studio or two people might have met in a school or there may have been a show that changed the parameters of something. Those connections are very important to what we do and how we build artists' careers. And I'm pretty sure not as many connections happened on certain levels. Obviously, people were communicating in a different way and there was positivity to that communication. You know, even my own company, I feel like in the last year, I've communicated with my staff in some ways in a better way because I visibly see them more often than I may have done 
if we just presumed we were going to bump into each other three times a year. It's different now. And, you know, I imagine the long tail of COVID will probably be playing itself out for a couple of years. I mean, live music, even though it's coming back in dribs and drabs, it's not going to be what it was anytime soon, right? You know, the live chapter is part of the experience that defines the whole musical process. And so therefore, to have that missing, it may not make a difference for some genres of music, but for some others, it's vital. I know from those moments, because I've been fortunate enough to be in those moments when something has transformed the moment, maybe at, you know, at a festival or just the club with seven people in it. And we haven't had that experience. And, and I think we miss that experience. I, you know, I certainly do. You know, I mean, I know that, again, there's been a lot of stuff online and artists have done amazing things from their bedrooms and from and readaptation of certain staging and all that kind of stuff. But the live thing is more important than that. What was the last show you saw before COVID? Oh, God. Um... Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I think it was a Tyler the Creator show. My 17-year-old daughter badges me to go to as many shows as possible. And so I think that was the last one. I know it was my wife's birthday. We went to see Harry Styles play a radio show at the Bowery Ballroom. And then we went on to the Brooklyn Center to see Celine Dion. How schizophrenic is that? And honestly, that isn't just made up for showbiz. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's interesting. You look back at the year and it becomes blurred about COVID and then into how we really had to up our game on social responsibility. Look, we're a genuinely global company. There are a lot of companies that are huge corporations that don't have offices in 80 countries. We do. So that was very easy to see the effects and the different 
measurements of those effects in the communities around the world. And so that was, to me, that was just obvious. You know, the globality of what we do was something that we needed to act quickly on. And I do work for a corporation and they're a big brand name corporation. But honestly, in Japan, they are very philosophically sound. And so therefore, when we realized we needed to do something, it couldn't just be a token gesture and it couldn't just be something that was like, we'll do a one-off donation and hopefully everyone will just leave us alone. That, that wouldn't work because we work with music, which is so living and breathing and so vital to people's lives that we decided that we need to do something dramatic and it needed to be continuous. And then the terrible events of the beginning of June with George Floyd, if that wasn't a wake-up call to everybody, never mind whether it was a music company or a corporation or a government or a country, we needed to act on that too. And one of the things we talked about when we put together the Social Justice Fund, which, which we went to Tokyo to get approval, was that this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction and it wasn't something that, that was going to last a month. And then, because the issues that we face in the business, because... Black music is the heart of what we do as a company right now, that those issues are not something we just turn around and face in a minute and then walk away. We have to make it completely part of the fabric of the company. So since then, what we've done, we've now supported, I think, over 300 organizations since June, globally, everywhere. Some of them are tiny and some of them are very big organizations. And so now part of my legacy is to make that part of everything we do. And hopefully, quite frankly, it makes us a better company and makes us a better destination for art, really, which is would be great if that was the case. Okay. So we talked a little bit about Spotify turning 15 this year, and it was actually Sweden that first returned to growth after many years of decline, which we had talked about at the turn of the century. Is there something to be said for looking at a smaller country like Sweden or like the UK, where you came up, as a microcosm of how the music business can function on a global scale? Did you look towards that and model that when you came to the US? I think certainly on the art side, yes, because if you look at the size of the UK and what it's produced artistically, it's out of parameters the number of people. Whether that goes back to the Beatles or whatever, I credit the BBC, I think, a lot of the time for that because I think the BBC was mandated to play every type of art form when all of us were growing up. And I think that made pop culture front and centre. If someone headlines Glastonbury Festival, they're on the front cover of the Times newspaper. I'm not sure there's many countries around the world where popular culture would be so front and centre. So what we exported out the UK certainly gave me the confidence because I was aware that that, that we could export something that's art, that's not steel or, or ball bearings or even tech. That's something very dramatic. And I think that what's happened with the tech revolution is that it can be anywhere. And I think Spotify, and I mean this in the most complimentary sense, is uniquely Swedish. And if you go to their Stockholm office, you understand the roots of that company. And maybe it couldn't have been founded anywhere else, but you know, TikTok's from China. China's a huge country with potentially incredible industrial prowess for the next chapter of history. And TikTok is changing the nature of our day-to-day -day business as well. But I think anywhere, anything can happen. And anywhere, anything can happen. And I'm seeing trends in 
popular music now globally. I read streaming charts from all around the world at least twice a week. And we have a young artist in Argentina. I think she's going to be fantastic. We're nurturing her. We're taking it very gently because she's young, but she's pretty special. And she's in the global charts right now. And I'm not sure that would have happened so dramatically with all the passport controls that physical distribution and, and broadcast distribution had 20 years ago. The truth is that the world's become a smaller place. I just saw some statistics a couple of days ago for Russia, and that market is booming with local language music. And I look at markets where we're expanding and, and where we're building offices. There's a young act called Gideon, signed to Sylvia Epic Records. He is in the U.S., streaming charts in the top 20, but he's also number one randomly in Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia right now. Number one in those three territories. Not borders where it went to Europe first, the UK, and then through passport control. That didn't pass the boundaries that would have been there 20 years ago. It must be so nice to not have that immediate barrier of entry. Like you have BTS, they sing in Korean. You have Rosalia. She sings in Spanish. Like the local language thing is no longer such an inhibitor of success. That must be so freeing as someone who works oh, in music. And, and that is what hopefully keeps me young, sane, excited. I mean, the other week we had Rosalia and Bad Bunny on Saturday Night Live and we worked for both artists. And the fact is that who would have said that on SNL, 20 years ago, there would be a Latin language song times two on that program. It would have been mind-boggling. But you know what? It worked. And it was magical. And those, I believe those two artists are two of the best new artists in the world over the last few years. And, and the fact is that people have got open ears. I know most of the charts around the world now. I'm not sure my predecessors had to because there was checkpoints. I don't think of... UK any more or less important than Mexico. Doesn't all have to be in English. No. And, and, and by the way, there's some artists that we have on our roster who, despite the fact they have had huge English language pop records, when they sing in their local language, it's way more transcendental. What moves you? What inspires you? How do you find yourself motivated every day? So I have to create a lot of change in this company. And, and so my remit is very broad and different to running a label as I did for 20 years. And so it's more broad-based and it's not as detailed and maybe on, on the individual artist. But the thing that still moves me is the purest art form. Scissor uh, released a track on Christmas Day and, and she it was quick and her and a, a company put the record out quickly. And I listened to this record, I'm going, how does anybody come up? with that hybrid and that fusion of music, which by the way, sounded like nobody else, despite the fact that she's had hit records before and makes this record that you look at the contributors to that piece of music, that it's completely unique. And then it come out of nowhere and the audience understand it quickly. And it became a huge hit very quickly, not because of the measurements of hits it's because it touched people so quickly that record and it was out on christmas day 
you know, it wasn't put out with a huge campaign, but the music absolutely, completely got under everyone's skin. Oh man, you're talking about good days by SZA, right? You could listen to that record four months later and it's still magical. So those moments move in and now much more kind of things we talk about. I just want, you know, our artists to be happy with what we do for them. And I want us, our, our, our staff to be happy with what happens in our company. And, and that's not easy either. This is a combustible business and it is emotional and it can be dramatic, as I just said. You know, I do really want to achieve that before I um, sit with a tartan rug somewhere with a flask of soup and listen to music with, without some of the uh, scale of what I have to do at the moment. Looking at the Grammys, talk about a diverse portfolio between Beyonce, Harry Styles, Travis Scott, Doja Cat, her. You know, you've really got it covered. How are you feeling coming into the Grammys this year? Well, it's weird. Every year when the Grammys comes up, it feels like a lot of work and a very busy week. And actually, when you don't have it, you go, that's a real shame the Grammys is now. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's got to be diverse. If we, a company of our scale, and it would be no different for our competitors, you know, if you haven't got diversity the Grammys, then you're not doing something right. You know, there's always this thing where they only go for the hits and they only go for the things that are happening today and they're not interested in tomorrow. Well, that's actually not true from the diversification of the music we have. We have a ton of stuff. We have stuff in R&B and folk and we have all the categories covered within our organization. Yeah. You know, I think that it's very hard to judge art. I know Drake stood up and did that, uh, said it exactly as it is. It's hard to make art a competition and music a competition. But the one thing is that we do need to be represented in a well-rounded way because we are a big company and we want that diversification of music. So I feel good about it this year. I mean, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in those moments. I was lucky when Adele came through and won those sets of Grammys and Best New Artist and then 21 and then 25. And I was you know, involved in the campaign for Random Access Memories. And that was kind of weird because two French guys dressed as robots beat the Grammy system and won that night. And that was definitely one of the best nights of my career because they are wonderful creators. I mean, you know, they are the purest form of creators, you know, as is Adele and as is Beyonce. And, and those artists, when they win, it's a great source of pride. And I've had great nights at the Grammys, Shirley, really. You know, I mean, I've been very fortunate. Some of those nights will be, you know, those moments I remember when I'm not doing this anymore. And they were truly fantastic you know and so i i like more of those but 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 i have plenty of memories i mean you know david bowie black star five grammys he didn't get voted grammy the album of the year how did that happen he won five grammys didn't get album of the year nomination see i still remember that five years later <laughs> rob thank you so much for talking to us best of luck at the grammys and we very much Looking forward to seeing what you do well, at Sony Well, you'll Music be kept posting. You'll have an opinion, undoubtedly, Shirley. So we'll just keep on trying to uh, <laughs> surprise you and, and we'll keep this stuff going because it is a transformative time for the business. And so we're going to, we're going to keep changing with it. And now a word with mastering engineer Emily Lazar, whose work is often the last step in the music making process and the one whose magic can make the difference between a song sounding good or great. For the 2021 Grammys, Emily has 10 projects in contention, including three in the Album of the Year category, Coldplay's Everyday Life, Himes Women in Music Part 3, and Jacob Collier's JC Volume 3. 
Her resume also includes seminal releases by Vampire Weekend, Beck, and Sia. Lazar's mixing and mastering mothership is New York's The Lodge, which she founded in 1997, and where she's worked on some 4,000 records. Lazar recently launched a charity initiative called Move the Needle, which aims to close the gender gap in music making. Emily, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Shirley. It is great to be here. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure you've never been asked, or maybe you've been asked it a gajillion times. How does it feel to be a woman in music? (laughs) My most favorite, least favorite question. (laughs) I hate that question. I abhor that question. That question takes you to places that really don't belong in the conversation. The conversation should be about the art you're making what brought you into the field, what inspires you, what makes you feel great, what makes you feel bad. Like those are the important things, the human side of of what we all do, not what gender you are. I've never really been able to even understand the question, right? People say, what does it feel like to be a female mastering engineer? My answer is always like, I don't know. I don't identify as a female mastering engineer. I think people are well-meaning when they ask it. But to me, it's actually condescending and degrading because it actually makes everything that you've done feel like it's not being judged equally in the rest of the world. For example, you're the first female master engineer to do X. I get that ceiling breaking moments are really important, but there's this twinge of, yeah, but somebody else did it before you. It doesn't really matter for me it was really just more important to me to get to do the things I wanted to do. And so those were things that I was able to navigate. Now the younger generation has taken none of it. (laughs) I'm so thrilled for them. Like they, like the Me Too movement, when the Me Too movement happened such a long time overdue, still hasn't really come fully to fruition as far as I'm concerned. But Like we more kept our head down, did our work, tried to stay out of the fray of elevating this conversation to the fervor that it got to deservedly because for fear that we wouldn't get to work, right? That we would be not taken seriously, that we would be pariahs and not be able to do the things that we loved, whether it be a journalist or making records. And and that would have been the shame because we would have been removed from the conversation by virtue of the fact that we were kind of in an abusive environment by calling out that abuse. But now that this has changed, the paradigm is totally flipped. And I, I, I really love it. I applaud it. I think it's really fabulous progress. I think we need even more. I think we're in a, in a time now where hopefully the tides are changing and we're starting to see some equity. 2.6% of music producers and engineers being female, that is not equitable. (laughs) We're just not there. We have a lot of work to do. And um, I'm really excited to try to help take on that challenge and change that statistic, not just with myself, but in helping others. But I do hate that question. I think of mastering as a last step in the creative process and maybe the first step in the manufacturing and the distribution process. I just so curious How do you step in as that last person in the process and understand the musicality and what that person or the artist is trying to do? How do you even wrap your head around it? 
That's actually a hugely important part of my process. I make a huge effort to have a dialogue and understand big picture. Like, what are we trying to do here? What is this about? What was going on in your life? Like, how is this different from your last album? What was there something inspiring you to go in this direction? Is this song or this chorus doing what it's supposed to do as you start to hone in on all the different things? Is the sequence doing the right thing? Is it telling the right story? I'm listening to all your songs and I'm hearing this common thread. Do you think maybe there are some intertextuality here that you didn't see that we should follow and take us down this road that you maybe even subconsciously wrote? It's similar to like artists writing songs and having a meaning and then a listener making their own meaning and it being incredibly meaningful for the listener, but actually not what the writer was intending, but still kind of hitting the the right buttons it's that kind of thing. And my goal is to always serve the song, tell the story, make that artist feel that we've done every possible thing we can. We're like that last chance Texaco to gas up, like making sure that we have done everything we possibly can to help them give birth to that baby and put it out in the world. And I really do think of songs and albums as giving birth. It's very similar. Having done that as well with my own son, it is a, it's a, you know, labor of love and getting them out, putting them out and having people potentially judge them and comment on them. Very nerve wracking experience, I think can be exhilarating and can be devastating um, and feel very misunderstood. So helping an artist give birth to that baby and then getting them through that moment where they're like, is my baby ugly? Do you like my baby? Is anybody else going to like my baby? You know, I enjoy that part of it as well. And working with bands, like, are you dealing with one person? Do you talk to the band as a unit? It's different every single time. It really depends on them, their schedule, where they are, if they're touring or not, minus things like pandemics, whether the album is being put together in a single driven way, i.e. I'm getting one track every couple of weeks or whatever or months and we put it together and they're releasing it one at a time because there's a new kind of trend to, you know, I've done tons of Zoom calls with some people, you know, like have a lot of options and pick. Sometimes I'll give people three options for something and then they'll pick and they might say, wow, I, I see what you're doing on one. And then, then I see what you're doing on number number two, version two. So I would love the choruses in number two, but I love the verses in number one. Can we edit together the choruses from two, the verses one? I go, yes, sure. Great. Awesome idea. So there's things that happen that you wouldn't even imagine. Weird, cool edits and things that make things flow and feel dynamic and tell the story that are are done on purpose that are specific. It's not just a five second decision and here you go. It's not like that at all. Not for me anyway. I wanted to talk about just one example from your incredibly long discography, which is insane. Uh, you've worked on 4,000 albums throughout your career. Crazy. This is a Grammy-nominated song, Sia's Chandelier. That song is so interesting sonically because there's a part in the course where it really sounds like her voice is cracking, which of mm-hmm. course gives it that grit and makes the song so unique. Can you tell me about like a decision like that to leave the sort of the rawness, the imperfection of like a guttural vocal? Well, so 
That was definitely a production and a SIA decision. But I specifically can recall that, look, I listen to music all day long and not everything affects me as deeply as another thing. But I try really hard to try to connect to what's happening. And I do have visceral reactions to these things. And that song made me cry and laugh. And I remember being like, wow. And I was like laughing because I was like, I'm crying. I can't believe I'm crying. This song is unbelievable. I remember just listening to it a few times and being like, I I, I was speechless. And I was just having an emotional response to it. And I remember everything about mastering that song. And I remember doing it a lot of times to get it to the point where I thought it was perfect. And I leaned into that edginess and I leaned into the wailing of what her vocal, which is insane what she can do with her voice. I kind of leaned into that. And I had done her earlier albums as well, her indie albums. And so I was familiar with her and that just literally blew my doors off. I'm just grateful and lucky that I got to hear that song before it was even out. (laughs) Well, so let's talk a little bit about the three album of the year contenders that you worked on. Albums by Coldplay, Haim, and Jacob Collier. Those seem on the surface to be very different sort of artists sonically. How did you approach them? Sonically speaking, they are really all different, but equally beautiful and deep albums. They all have one thing in common. They're telling stories, like real big stories. And they all communicate in an intimate way, even in in their biggest moments and in their biggest songs on the album. There's an intimacy there in the delivery on all three of those albums. And so I think that's a through line. I don't know if that's a overall sonic tonal mastering through line. But for me, it's a through line because that's a big part of mastering for me. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned part of your job is providing this sort of uniform listening experience across platforms, devices, however you hear your music. Um, Title, I feel like has, you know, really sort of found its niche with audiophiles, people who appreciate the high quality of sound. Um, does this change what you deliver? Uh, the fact that there's that there's more sort of like hi-fi minded um, outlets now. Yes, and I've been demanding this, and <laughs> feel like I'm like screaming from the rafters, like that this needs to change. This needed to change a long time ago. And Spotify, love them, great platform, super easy. Everyone has it. Everyone uses it. Sounded awful really sound does not sound as good as it should. It's a disservice to the artists. It's a disservice to the people who are making records and crafting this stuff. And it's a huge disservice to the consumer because I get to hear it at full res resolution in my studio. I get to hear it on great speakers. I'm not hearing it streaming. I'm hearing the real deal. My concern is that we're just not giving people the quality that they need or the quality that the art deserves. And I can boil this down to an example that I've made before, and I'll I'll use it again, just because I think it makes it clear. If I were to go to a museum and pay 
the museum entrance fee and wander down the halls and end up standing in front of the Mona Lisa. If the Mona Lisa were hanging on the wall and it was a photocopy of a photocopy of a shrunken photocopy of a stamp sized version of a black and white photocopy of the Mona Lisa, I can't imagine that it would give me the same visceral reaction that it would if I actually saw the Mona Lisa smile. And this is to me a very similar experience with what's happening with music. The representation that the consumer is getting is the equivalent of a photocopy of a reduced size photocopy. That's a problem. And I appreciate Title for standing their ground and offering um, higher res and actually also addressing the credits issues. Um, and I'm very, very grateful that Spotify has made this announcement and that they're gonna work as hard as they can to offer what I think would be a really great start. Streaming things are convenient, but they don't sound good. Period. Tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.